Welcome to Indie Matters, the show from the Nevada Independent. I'm your host, Joey Lovato, up here in Reno. And I'm reporter and producer Jacob Solis down in Las Vegas. We are off this week reporting on some amazing news stories, so we're bringing you some of our favorite podcast pieces from the past in this special Rewind episode. That's right. The first piece we're revisiting is going to take you out to Great Basin National Park in eastern Nevada, where Joey hikes some rocky mountains to find the bristlecone pine, one of the oldest living organisms on the planet, to learn just what makes them so special and what could be threatening them. And to finish out the show, we have another piece about plants in the desert, this time grapes. I talked to some experts on the wine industry here in Nevada and what it could look like in the future, as well as some hurdles they've faced in the past when it comes to growing grapes and making juice out here in the West. James Woolsey is the superintendent of Great Basin National Park, and he and I went on a hike a few weeks back so that he could show me something really special. They're magical, they're, they're so old. And I think to think about it, how can a tree live for 5,000 years? The bristlecone pine is one of the state trees of Nevada and is one of the oldest living single organisms in the world. That doesn't mean it's immortal, though. The tree, like other organisms around the world, is facing several environmental threats. We'll dive into that in a minute, but first, let's hear more about these spectacular trees' age. I think bristlecones help put life into perspective. You have to work a little bit to get to go see these bristlecones, but if you take the time to do that, you feel appreciative of all they've gone through and you realize, ah, yeah, life might be better than I think it is. (laughs) That was Gretchen Baker. She's an ecologist and a cave specialist at Great Basin National Park. She talked to reporter Daniel Rothberg and me for this story. Well, bristlecone pine is one of the longest living organisms on Earth. When you get up to the trees and you look at the bristlecone pines, you just feel a little different. They started growing long before you were born, long before your parents were born, your grandparents, back many, many generations. And it's just a different time scale. If you've never seen a bristlecone pine, don't think of your typical tree. Some of these trees really look like they're thousands of years old, with gnarled branches and very wide trunks. James was telling me all about them on our hike. In areas where it seems like they need to struggle a little bit more, they get these disjointed shapes. And they're not even round at all. It's almost like a tree you'd see in a Dr. Seuss novel. Squarish and have shoots going up in all directions. They have bark on a small little portion of the tree. They'll have three or four limbs and three of the limbs will be dead. And one limb will have little (laughs) tufts of green on it. And you'll think, well, that thing has to be dead. But but there's just one living thing on it. So we're coming up on this one, which really is a funky one. I mean, it's so hard. It's like a stone. Yeah. (laughs) And I mean, this one has more green than most of them. And that's probably why it grew up a little bit. So bristlecone pines can live so long because they just hang on to life for a really long time. And they do that by letting parts of the tree die. So if their roots get exposed, that's a death knell for that part of the tree that is supported by those roots. But if there are roots that are still underground, that part of the tree can still continue growing. So there might just be a strip of bark that goes up from those roots and helps to get the water and nutrients up to that part of the tree. And it's called strip barking. And you can see some trees with some amazing twisting and turning and that strip of bark just follows along till it gets out to those 
bristlecone pine needles. And those themselves can be up to 40 years old. The bristlecone has a pretty extensive range, actually. They grow through most of the Great Basin and in areas like Owens Valley in eastern California, as well as in central and eastern Nevada, Utah, and Colorado, as well as small portions of northern Arizona and New Mexico. They don't compete well with other trees and commonly succumb to root rot in gardens. They thrive in harsh environments where most other plants can't grow, in high altitudes with rocky soils, in areas with little rainfall. They're kind of on top of all these high elevation areas all over the place. So I think, you know, some people I think are under the impression that they're, they're very limited in scope or they're rare, but they're actually not that rare. The really oldest trees might be a little rarer. It's kind of where they can grow and where they can grow a long time. And it seems like something that's particularly important, you know, especially if someone's gonna live two or 4,000 years is they're not in a place that's gonna burn all the time. And that is now one of the threats facing the tree. With climate change comes more fires, which could burn some of the trees that are thousands of years old. It has burn normal. scars on it, you can see. Yeah, yeah. They are somewhat fire resistant, huh? Yes, and they, you know, you know, every once in a while, you gotta assume that a fire will come through here. We know this area is burned historically because we're able to go into the lakes and look at the layers of mud. And every once in a while, there'll be a charcoal layer you know, like 1300 or something like that. There was a huge, probably stand replacing fire up mm -hmm. here. The evidence seems to indicate that certainly since humans have been here over the last 15,000 years, this place was well burned. And since Euro-American colonization, this area has burned hardly at all. Mm -hmm. And so the ecology has really drastically changed in the last 150 years. And you'd think, oh, less fires, that's good. But instead of having small fires that just leave a scar, now there is more fuel because the area hasn't burned in so long. That could lead to a much larger fire that could leave more than just a scar on some of these thousand-year-old trees. Here's Gretchen again. Wildfire, generally those older bristlecone pines have a lot of space among the trees. And so the fire usually doesn't carry that well. But what we're finding is at lower elevations, mid-mountain, the trees are denser and the, when the wildfires do occur there, they can be hotter and burn faster and we can get more sparks up into the bristlecone pines than possibly in, in past times. But the bristlecones might be a little more susceptible to fire now. But fire isn't the only threat these pines face. There's also white pine blister rust, a fungus that can kill the tree. White pine blister rust? the non-native fungus, but we can are monitoring for it because in Colorado, where it's come in, it has really hurt a lot of the bristlecone pines. There are efforts to protect from the fungus, though, where Great Basin, the U.S. Forest Service, and Rocky Mountain Research Station are collaborating. And another threat to the tree, and possibly the scariest, are beetles. We're, we're learning more and more about this, but yes, there are Little bugs that seem to be natural, almost predators of trees. And so we have beetles. But it does seem like the bristlecone in particular seems more able to withstand those things and fend them off. And then we've just discovered a couple of populations of bristlecones that are being invaded by beetles. And one is on the range in Death Valley that Telescope Peak is on. And then the second range is in western Utah. And in both those populations, we found 
bristlecones invaded by these beetles. It's absolutely scary because we, we really don't understand it yet. Is that, is there something unique about those two populations that has allowed that? Or is this maybe our first warning of something bigger that's going to happen? We put verbenone, which is a pheromone to ward off mountain pine beetle. The verbenone works to basically tell other mountain pine beetles that this tree is already full of mountain pine beetles. So they should go find some other tree. It seems to work quite well. So that's in progress. Over in Death Valley, they, they are definitely having some problems with the bristlecone pine. The pine beetles are able to attack those trees because they're so stressed with the, the drought. On top of all of this, the environment that these trees grow best in poses a challenge in and of itself. The fact that some of these trees make it thousands of years is a minor miracle. Bristlecone pines are the masters of living in harsh conditions. They have to deal with really cold temperatures all winter long. They deal with a nearly nonstop wind because the, the the ones that grow the longest are often on ridges. And because of that, they grow in these unique forms where a lot of them are hunched over or growing in a particular direction because the wind has shaped them. If they're lucky enough to make it past the, the seedling stage, when they can be eaten by various things, they, they have to grow very slowly, deal with very little water, very few nutrients. They can deal with a lot of intense sun because they're up at high elevations. They deal with just all sorts of environmental difficulties and yet they just keep doing it year after year and century after century and millennia after millennia. So there are fires, fungus, and beetles threatening these trees. But as we've learned, these are hardy plants that can really survive a challenging environment. So they're threatened, but they aren't endangered. So why are we talking about them then? On top of being so unique and old, they can teach us a lot. One fascinating thing is that these trees are actually migrating. Just like an animal might migrate to find a sustainable climate to live and breed and thrive in, so too do trees, just on a longer time scale. So we are seeing the bristlecone pine growing up higher on the mountain now. We have little seedlings that are starting to creep up the mountains. They're trying to find more hospitable climate to grow. We have stumps of them growing up on Mount Washington higher than where they are growing now. And that is from when the climate used to be even warmer than it is now. And the trees had to move up the mountain. They grew, then it got a little colder and they died. And so we get really cool climate records from those stumps that are up a little higher. So bristlecone pine is very adaptable to different climates. However, because it does take so long to get going and to start producing pine seeds, sometimes it can be 40 or 50 years before it produces viable pine seeds. If climate change happens too fast, that could make it a little harder for it to survive long-term. Bristlecone pines live so long that we can actually measure geology with the trees. These trees grow so long that you can see the erosional rates of the rocks under them. And on top of what we can learn, these behemoths of trees, these ancient sentinels of the Sierra Nevadas, Rockies, and Great Basin Mountains, are inspiring. Their age is one thing, but as James put it, it's not the only thing that makes them spectacular. 
So these are like some of the oldest organisms on Earth, huh? And we love things that are the biggest or the oldest. And you know, I, I, I do think sometimes we, we go a little bit overboard on those things. Even beyond how old they are, just how they look. They're like a piece of art. They're beautiful. So a hundred years ago, I don't think a human would have looked at these trees and said, these are special and we, we're going we're gonna to make a big deal about them. <laughs> but I think eventually through time, people discovered how old they are. And then they started really looking at them and thinking about them. This is amazing. You know, we live on this amazing planet that has such incredible natural resources. And I think, you know, just even the last couple hundred years, think about what we've learned about our place in the universe. And, you know, and now we know as animals, you know, they, they've been here millions of years and we're protecting an important slice of that. Human beings, I think for a long time, we've lived on this earth and not really thought through what we're doing. And we just go do whatever seems right. And oftentimes cause animals to go extinct and things of that sort. And, you know, as a National Park Service, I think we're doing a really important mission to preserve this natural heritage that belongs to all of us. This piece was reported and produced by myself, Joey Lovato, and Daniel Rothberg. It was edited by me with additional help from Jackie Valley. I was also able to go on that hike with James thanks to PBS Reno's show, Wild Nevada. They will have an episode all about Great Basin National Park and Baker, Nevada, that is supposed to air sometime in spring 2023. So make sure to keep your eye out for that. Fifteen years ago, Kathleen Russell and her husband Robert moved to the Palomino Valley, about an hour and a half north of Reno, near Pyramid Lake. They moved from near the Napa-Sonoma area. We were one of those hippies that positively wanted a vineyard. And we dreamed about it, but kids in life. In 2018, Kathleen and Robert decided after much research that they were going to follow their dream of having a vineyard in their retirement. And a year later, they were planting grapes on their five acres north of Reno and started Palomino Vines. We have the same kind of soil you're going to find in eastern Washington. Volcanic, sandy, very little organic matter. All of the things that grapes love. We planted in 2019. It took a lot of work. We got the vines in the ground. It took us 18 months. We worked nonstop. We have 6,532 vines. We have Syrah, Cabernet Sauvignon, Malbec, and a brand new vine called Petit Pearl. So why are we talking about wine and vineyards today? We have fewer wineries than any other state in the country. Why? That was Grant Kramer, a professor emeritus from UNR who studied grape growing in the state. And he's asking the question that made me want to look into this story in the first place. Why are there so few wineries here? The reason why our wine industry is so small seemed pretty self-evident to me at first. We live in a desert. It's not a place where things grow. I didn't imagine grapes grew here. 
<laughs> well, it turns out that that is not at all the case, and actually the reason has to do with policy. But before we get into that, let's set the stage a little bit. Wineries and vineyards are not synonymous. Stuart Michel is the president of the Nevada Grape Growers and Winemakers Association, and he explains the difference. Do we also have vineyards in Nevada, or are all of the wineries also a vineyard? No, they don't all have wineries. So there are commercial grape growers, and some of those folks have vineyards in their winery. And you also have wineries that don't have any vineyards. They basically buy all their grapes. And then we also have a combination of the both. Wine is not something that I think of when I think of Nevada. We do not have very many wineries. How many do we have, actually? So there's eight commercial wineries in Nevada. There's uh, four in northern Nevada. There's one in Lovelock. And then there are three active wineries in southern Nevada, two in Pahrump and one in Henderson. So back to this policy issue. This is partially why there aren't more wineries or vineyards in Nevada. Up until 2015, you couldn't actually operate a winery in the two most populated counties in Nevada. Nevada law said that any county with more than 100,000 people couldn't have a winery. That was set in 1993, and prior to that, it was counties larger than 30,000 people. At the time, it was designed to encourage tourism, agriculture, and economic development in rural counties. But Grant explains the problem with that approach. There's a, such a potential for tax revenue, just like there has been with cannabis, right, that we should be exploiting that and allowing that to blossom rather than inhibiting it. Washington state is the best example to that. We have very similar climate to the eastern Washington where the grape growing and wine region is, and they have millions, if not billions of dollars of revenue coming in. AB4, I'm looking for a motion to do pass. For AB4, Madam Vice Chair, Senator Farley has uh, seconded the motion. Is there any discussion? Seeing none, all those in favor say aye. aye. All those opposed, same sign. Motion passes. Now we'll move into the work session. So in 2015, the Nevada legislature passed a law known as AB4, which allowed wineries to open in more populated counties with a few caveats, which we'll come back to in a minute. But first, here's Stuart Michelle again, explaining why the Nevada wine and grape community kind of needed this central organization. Our purpose is to bring together the grape growers and the winemakers that are here in Nevada, as well as attract new people that are putting their feet into the business and bring everybody together so that we can have a common goal. There wasn't a central organization. There wasn't a, a single mission. In California and places where they grow a lot of wine, they measure grapes in hectares. In growing wine markets like Texas and Colorado, they measure in acres. In Nevada though, we measure by the number of vines growing in the state. It's been seven years since Assembly Bill 4 passed, and we still only have eight wineries. There are still some caveats to having wineries in Nevada though. One is that wineries have to use 25% Nevada-grown grapes, and right now there's just a lack of supply from grape growers in the state to provide grapes to winemakers. One reason for that is that it takes about five years for a vineyard to reach its full maturity, and uh, Kathleen Russell with Palomino Vines started planting in 2019, and they can start harvesting after about three years, but they don't get a full crop until about five. But Kathleen and her husband have also faced a few setbacks with their vineyard along the way. In 2020, April 20th, we had five and a half hours of 27 degrees. We lost every single vine. So the very first disadvantage of Nevada vineyards is everybody assumes it's too cold. And it is. It is very cold here. And it's very difficult to get over that 
hump. And so it was also the first year of COVID. (laughs) No employees. So we let him sit because we did know that vines can come back. And they did. We got half of the field back, which was thrilling, wonderful. Last year, we planted 2,885 vines um, to fill in. It was just all we could do. Grapes have such a dynamic and vibrant lifestyle. Their cycle is very clear. And so you do get involved in it. You Mm -hmm. kind of become one with it. There's like that synergy amongst your vines. So what what did it feel like then when you lost your grapes in 2020? We were devastated. It was like, how could we have let them die? What, what didn't we do? And really at that point, we couldn't have done anything more because we didn't know what we didn't know. That was a very sad year. With those challenges, there is one thing that I got wrong when thinking about growing grapes here in Nevada. The desert is surprisingly a great place to grow grapes. The cold maybe not so much, but the dry climate is not an issue. Here's Grant Kramer again, who studied climate resiliency of grapes when teaching at UNR. In 1995, I met a person who was interested in planting grapes in in Nevada. Nobody had tried to grow wine grapes, and frankly, I thought it was a crazy idea. One of the secrets to improving the growth of the grapes was to give them less water. We were overwatering them during the summertime. That's one of the things that we did in our research was to show you could grow grapes with a lot less water than most people think. We could produce grapes at 12 times less the amount of water applied to an acre of alfalfa. So grapes turns out to be pretty darn drought tolerant. In a sense, they're pretty cold tolerant, but not as cold as our native species. So there are hybrids out there where people have been breeding them to try to improve on the cold tolerance. The thing that grapes are not very good at is salt tolerance. They're very, very sensitive to salt. We have a lot of salt in Nevada. 50% of our soils in Nevada that are irrigated are salty. So that poses a problem. Palomino Vines is just one of the vineyards filling the gap in the grape production deficit that is limiting Nevada wineries. We, we have a very clear dream. We want to sell exclusively to Nevada. We are 100% backing Nevada wine. We have talked to a lot of wineries here. It really comes down to your year of harvest, come talk to us. Because there aren't many vineyards here, the wineries can't produce large amounts of wine to get their name on the map. Here's Stuart Michelle again with Nevada Grape Growers and Winemakers. We can actually do lobbying for our members, and that is something that we're certainly thinking about doing in 2023. There's some key roadblocks that I think need to be eliminated before you have entrepreneurs and business people and investors thinking about starting vineyards and opening up wineries in Nevada. We, we certainly know what most of those key pieces of legislation are. For example, the 25% rule. It, it's a good thing in that it potentially encourages more grape growing in Nevada by requiring that 25%. But if that's a limitation, you're not going to, let's say, have a big investor who wants to make 10,000 cases of wine. Most of the boutique wineries would say you, you need to at least be producing and selling 5,000 cases of wine a year to make a sufficient profit. 
if we're going to have 25% grapes and there's no grapes here or not enough grapes for the wineries that are already here, it's basically going to be a, a tragic lack of supply. And while the wine coming out of Nevada right now is limited, Nevada can hold its own against some of the other more established wine-growing states. It's one of the first wineries licensed after the laws were changed in 2015, and Nevada Sunset Winery won double gold and best of shop. So what is it going to take for Nevada to ramp up and realize its potential in the wine industry? Here's Grant Kramer again. It takes an entrepreneur, it takes somebody with money to go out and start something brand new is a big risk. So you have to know what you're doing. So there hasn't been somebody that's come in and said, okay, we're going to make this a big commercial operation like the cannabis industry has done. It's gotten huge amounts of investment for it. So that's, that's one reason. We've been under the radar. And why would they come to Nevada if they've got a nice property in California? There has to be some advantage, whether it's economic or uniqueness of the climate. And that's something we have to build with reputation. When Washington State first started 30 some odd years ago, they weren't very well known either. Today, people are throwing money at Washington State, you know, and doctors and lawyers and football quarterbacks and all sorts of people taking their lots of their money and buying up property and starting up wineries. But it's still just in its infancy and it's just going to take time. But some see winemaking and grape growing as having uncorked potential. I think it's exponential. Uh, we have all the opportunity. The General Assemblies and the legislators in our surrounding states had the vision, and also the early winemakers. Washington, Oregon, obviously California, but Idaho and, and Colorado and Arizona and New Mexico and Texas generates over $13 billion for the state revenue coffers. Colorado is something like $5 billion already. So I think the potential is is dramatic. And Nevada is the state, we rely on, let's say, three primary industries, gaming, mining, and agriculture. And so why not adapt and modify and expand the agricultural ability of Nevada? We've got all the space in the world and grapes don't need a lot of water. As for those vineyards that are paving the way, Kathleen told me that while this is her and her husband's retirement project, it's also a way for them to leave an important legacy for their children. For us, our biggest motivation is that we want to create a legacy for our children. The legacy is Palomino Vines, we only do a sustainable. That is absolutely my primary goal. We have not ever grown anything that wasn't sustainable. To me, it is an important legacy to leave for our children. And I think that it is very viable in the state of Nevada to do that. Other than the freezing temps, which we can control by different varietals, I can't think of a better place to grow grapes. This is our first harvest, so we're very excited. The story was reported, produced, and edited by me, Joey Lovato, with additional help from Jackie Valley.
Thank you for listening to this episode of Indie Matters. This show is produced and edited by me, Joey Lovato, with additional help from Jackie Valley, Michelle Rendells, and Riley Snyder. If you want to support the show, leave us a rating and review wherever you listen. And you can donate to The Nevada Independent on our website, thenevadaindependent.com. Our original theme song is from Emily Pratt, and we have additional music from Storyblocks and original music from Joey. Thank you for listening to Indie Matters. We'll be back next week with more reporting from in and around the Silver State. I'm your host, Joey Lovato. And I'm reporter and producer Jacob Solis. And we'll talk to you next week.